Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. This is Vikram from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 35th podcast. This episode was a really fun one. We spoke to David Baker from Mercadine Funds, my first portfolio manager at my first hedge fund analyst job many years ago. David is a really smart guy, and he takes a unique approach to generating alpha by investing in micro and small cap companies. He joins us to talk about all things investing. We cover a slew of topics. How he started investing in his first call with a management team at age 13. How he parlayed his experience as a broker to starting his first micro and small cap fund. How he runs his current fund, risk management, and his current investment philosophy. We go over factors that make attractive investment opportunities, like a huge total addressable market, compelling business model, accelerating sales growth, high insider ownership, and also red flags that he sees on a regular basis. He also talks about his experience investing in turnaround self-storage units. Finally, we finish up by discussing his views on the current economy and what sectors he likes right now. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here from Quantlayer. I'm joined by Fizan, who's also known as The Wizard. And we're joined today with David Baker of Mercadine Investments, where he's managing member and portfolio manager. So just a quick background, David and I know each other from his prior fund, Core Fund Management, where I was his research analyst many, many, many years ago. So we're super excited to speak to David because he has decades of investing experience, both on the public and private side, and also because he's a really clear thinker when it comes to investing. So thanks a lot for being on our podcast, David. Thanks for having me, Vic. It's a pleasure. Yep. So you are in in Vegas now, right? Because you were in SF for a little while, and then I think you lived in the Pacific Northwest for a bit, and now you're in Vegas? Correct. Bend, Oregon, then uh, Bellevue, Washington, then Las Vegas. Yeah. How's that been? How's how's Vegas been? Las Vegas is great. There's a ton of things to do. The economy's really changed from being casino-centric to having a sports economy, having a technology economy, property values increasing substantially, yep. lots to do away from the strip. So, And the weather's great and the taxes are low. So right. it's a great place. <laughs> yeah, I got the, the taxes are low is the thing that uh, is perking my ears up. <laughs> Yes, a lot of a lot of Californian funds are moving this direction. Oh, really? There's a 17 percent uh, carry tax that's pending in the California state legislature now, which would take the already 53 percent federal and state taxes to 70 percent. So that's not too uh, attractive for fund businesses. Is that California specific, or are other states kind of doing something similar? To the best of my knowledge, it's just California in its unique self. Yep. So we'd love to hear a little about your background, you know, how you got into investing. Um, It's always really interesting to hear about how investors got into the stock market. There's always like one kind of early story that got them interested in it. So we'd love to hear about your background and how you got into investing. Sure. I got into investing because my grandfather actually got me into investing. He was a, a general surgeon and invested heavily his earnings from his surgery practice into the stock market almost exclusively, some bonds, but mainly equities. And when I was 13 years old, 38 years ago, he gave me a thousand shares of Nucor Steel, ticker NUE. Oh, wow. That was my first experience into investing and learning how to read the quotes in the stock pages. And even at age 13, having my first conversation with management, which in this case was Kenneth F. Iverson, the chairman and CEO of Nucor Steel. So you were 13 at this time when you talked to the the chairman there? Correct. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you remember the conversation, like what, what you guys talked about? I don't remember the content, but I remember he was extremely gracious yeah. and very patient. I remember talking to his secretary and being put through to him. It was, it was a really wild experience. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was addicted from then on, I think. Yeah. So then I also remembered you had gone through law school as well, right? Did that help kind of, I mean, how did that play into your interest in investing? 
Well, I really didn't have an interest in the legal end of securities. I just was pushed or encouraged by my parents to either go to medical school or go to law school. So I went to law school and after the first semester, I really didn't like it. And my mother said to me, well, why don't you quit? And as soon as she said that, I decided I wasn't going to quit and I was going to finish it, even though I didn't really okay. want to have anything to do with, with the legal profession. Yep. So the uh, the contrarian streak started early. It, start, it started early. And then after I worked for the SEC during law school for the uh, Division of Enforcement and then the Division of Corporation Finance during a, one summer. And so that was an interesting experience, but I felt it was quite dry doing the research at uh, Corp Fin, as they call it, in Washington, D.C. And so when I graduated, I then went to Merrill Lynch to work as a retail broker. Mm -hmm. And as a retail broker, I guess at the time, they would, Merrill Lynch probably had, you know, some set of stocks that they wanted you to sell to their clients, or did you have a little bit of autonomy there? Like, how did that kind of work? Well, it's interesting because back in those days, there were recommended lists of securities, for example, the top 10 dividend-yielding securities, Or, for example, there might be a fund that they recommended. It was really the beginning, the years that I was there. So that was 1992, I believe. That was really the beginning of RAP programs. But they were encouraging it. It wasn't forced or compelled the way it is today. It's forced and compelled. And it's very difficult at most broker-dealers, most firms today to pick securities yourself and or to deviate from things that are not programmatical, I guess. Yep. Gotcha. So what what was that experience like? How long did you do that for? I did that for three years and I had a great mentor named Steve Rocha. He was fantastic mentor. He was very supportive and a great teacher, also a supporter, would give me a lot of autonomy. So if there was ever a great experience at a brokerage firm, I certainly had a great one though I was really yeah. c- compelled to go off and uh, start a hedge fund. Yep. So you be- you did your few years there. And then, so how did the inkling start? How did you know, like, because there weren't that many hedge funds back then, right? I mean, there probably were under 100. In terms of small cap, micro cap, there was very, very few. And there was probably only a couple of hundred, as you say, domestically in the U.S. Worldwide, there was less than a few thousand. I don't know if it was 1,700 or 1,300, but yep. worldwide in 1994, there was very few funds, no matter what the style worldwide. In fact, Appaloosa, I think they had just started in 93, so not too many. And and the, yep. the inkling was that I wanted to not have a suggested list of securities, be able to have security selection on my own, which I was allowed mm-hmm. to do, but I could see that the broker-dealer community and Merrill Lynch was moving away from from that autonomy. And so I had set things up to launch our fund. And the first day I expected to move to the fund with assets, but the uh, compliance officer, I remember his name, (laughs) he actually, he called all my clients and scared them about being independent. And yes, by the end of the day, I had the fund set up and I moved over to trade in my new office and I had no assets, no clients. Oh, wow. At the end of the first day. Huh. So, so uh, that, that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. So what did you do, I guess? Just started calling friends and family, which is, yeah. uh, I didn't have a lot of family, but uh, I called a few people and called some friends. So I started with a minimal amount of capital and I was uh, you know, quite passionate about it. And in order to raise capital, it was actually easier back in those days than yep. today. Because in those days, there were a few hedge fund database tracking services, like it was called MAR Hedge, and there was a few others. And what you would do is report your returns monthly. They would then fax those returns out to mainly institutional investors around the world. Mm -hmm. And the investors would just call you and give you money. (laughs) (laughs) It was that easy. It was never more than one conversation or two, usually one to get capital. Okay. Did they take a cut? Like, did they, what was their business model? Well, MAR Hedge was a publication and a tracking service. So I don't know if they sold, I suppose they sold their subscription and their tracking services, but I don't know about the bifurcation of services, but they were a a publication and a database and there was a few others. Yep. 
Gotcha. So, you know, you called friends and family, started working with some assets, put some trades and investments on, presumably you did pretty well because eventually institutions got in touch with you to invest directly? Correct. We never did any marketing, and that's really our fault or weakness, if you will, at the time. We never did any marketing. We just reported our returns. If people called us, great. If they didn't, we just traded. And uh, yeah, the returns were good. They were uh, 42% gross, 33% net. Of course, past performance is no indication of future results, but 42 gross, 33 net, seven years in a row, audited returns. Wow. And what was the the types of stocks that you invested in then? Were they mostly microcap? Mostly small cap and micro cap, similar yep. to what we're doing today. Yep. Things have changed, but it's a similar uh, capitalization tiers, if you will. Got it. So 50, 50 million to 300 million for micro cap and 300 million to 2 billion for small cap, which are sort of standard capitalization tier markers today. Yep. So what is the broad investment thesis for small and micro caps. I imagine, you know, it's it's going to be harder to get like a 10x return on Apple than a 10x return on like a, you know, a $2 million, $20 million micro cap stock that goes to $200 million market cap. So I imagine it's a return based, but all, there must be other kind of stuff, I guess. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You're, you're correct. Our investment thesis is this. We're seeking securities, small cap and micro cap, generally equities, structured transactions, like convertible debentures, et cetera, that are non-correlated to the indices and have a high return risk profile. Mm-hmm. And we're capitalizing on discovery premium and information arbitrage. So discovery premium being the market multiple expansion that happens from investment community visibility, whether it's institutional sponsorship, broker-dealer coverage, general awareness. Mm-hmm. And the information arbitrage is publicly available information. Again, this information is publicly available to everybody but people are not paying attention to it. For example, we constantly see disparities between news releases and 8Ks and slide decks. Okay. And so we go through that very carefully, and there's lots of good, helpful information that's fully available to everybody if you take the time to read it. Yep. So that's the thesis. Got it. We should uh, delve into that a bit. So you might, do you mind talking a little bit about multiple expansion and what that is and how that works? Sure. So... One of the processes that we go through when we're analyzing a security is looking at uh, comparative valuation analysis. It could be a large cap company, a small cap company, mid cap, and we're looking at what are those relative valuations in terms of financial ratios and multiples of operating metrics and comparing it to the subject company that we're looking at. So generally, we're investing in these small cap, micro cap companies where the discovery premium has not happened. That is to say, the multiples of operating metrics and the financial ratios show very low valuation as compared to the comparables. And so that's very, very helpful. And usually they're trading at, as an example, 60, 70, literally 80% discounts to the comparables. And usually the main reason is, assuming it's a good company and your diligence and research is comprehensive, is because there's a lack of investment community visibility, a lack of awareness. Yep. So the company either hasn't begun or is just beginning roadshows, is just beginning to put out more press releases, mm-hmm. is starting to understand the value of doing a video or value of getting to know the broker-dealer community for coverage, meeting with funds that they might not think would be interested, but they are. So meeting with funds for that sponsorship to try to get 13 Ds and 13 Gs filed for large positions. All those things are investment community visibility activities, and those things drive awareness, which then drives sponsorship and then causes market multiple expansion and the discovery premium to occur, which then brings the valuation of the company up and obviously the multiples and financial ratios with it. Right. And I guess it could potentially help with sales as well, now that the name is you know more well-known, is that, or is that not really the case? No, that is the case depending upon the sector. For example, if it's a retail company, whether it's a, a restaurant, a phone, okay, some retail product, that's absolutely the case. And as I constantly remind CEOs, 
your customers become your investors and your investors become your customers. Mm -hmm. When you have a a broad-facing product, I say retail, I guess it could be B2B as well. But the point is when you have a large total available market without excessive customer concentration, your investors really can become your customers and your customers, your investors. So it is true. Yep. And what kind of, uh, I know this is a little broad, but I imagine that some companies are much better at this process of going out to the public and getting institutional sponsorship and so forth. So what are some differences between these micro and small caps that do it well versus the ones that don't? Like all other things being equal, you know, like sales and margins and other kind of financial metrics, like what are some kind of qualitative things? Sure, that's a great question. Really, I don't think any CEO is born with the knowledge, expertise, and experience to do investment community visibility unless they came out of, for example, a digital marketing background. So the difference between the companies that are doing it well and aren't, I think, comes down to a couple different things. One is philosophy. Does the executive team understand that with investment community visibility, you're really buying market capitalization. That's the reality. So with visibility comes your valuation and their mar- and one's market cap. And the executive team has to philosophically accept that, mm-hmm. embrace it, and react to it. Two is budget. There needs to be a budget for it. And companies that don't have the budget for it should actually raise capital to have a budget for investment community visibility. Otherwise, they risk being an, an orphan stock. And just, I remember we took a company public many years ago. Yep. I don't mind saying who it is. It was Zag, Z-A-G-G. Oh, okay. And I was speaking to Robert Peterson. I think we did the first deal around five cents-ish. And uh, I was speaking with Robert Peterson and I was explaining to him and he said, yeah, you know, having a great company with no investment community visibility is like having a beautiful store in the desert. Nobody knows about <laughs> it. And he was so right. Yeah. <laughs> And then he spent the next year and a half on the road all the time. He went home to his family, told them, and was on the road for the next year and a half. Every conference you could imagine, everything he could do for visibility, he was really a master. So you need the philosophical disposition to do it and understand that the result of not doing it is becoming an orphan stock and you need budget. Yep. What did you like about the Zag story at the time? Well, first of all, love the CEO, a great human being. He's very magnetic with his people, with his employees. Mm -hmm. And so there was minimal attrition and his sales were always growing, not just every year and every quarter, but when he was private growing every month and he was coming up with new ideas to sell product all the time. So he was extremely sales centric and yet tremendous credibility, humility, and really, again, magnetic with people, whether it be investors or employees. And along those lines, I guess, I mean, another very kind of charming magnetic personality, of course, is Elon Musk of Tesla fame. And obviously, that is a highly contested stock. And it seems like the content, I don't know like how familiar you are with the story, if you follow that closely or anything like that. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. But it always seems like the longs are kind of on the magnetic personality side. And I'm kind of like, I'm butchering the bull bear case here because there are obviously there are nuances, but like on the bull side, you have like people who are kind of drawn to that magnetic personality. Elon Musk can do anything. And the bears are like, well, look at the financial metrics. Like it's not in good shape. Like they're going to have to lower earnings next year just by the nature of how many deliveries they're going to have and things like that. So I guess when you're drawn by kind of this type of magnetic personality, you know, when does it work and when does it doesn't? And I guess what I mean by that, are there, are there kind of like risk red flags and things like that you should consider when you are kind of investing? Sure. And I think what you're really asking is about assessing management, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Assessing management. So I think it's a red flag, for example, when the CEO is very outspoken, but there's not operating results and milestones to back it up. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a red flag. And Robert was very successful from the beginning. And so mm-hmm. he was just, he was just doing what he was supposed to do and being nice and being nice to everybody along the way. So that's really it. He, he wasn't outspoken. He was just nice and yeah. affable 
and hungry to do well. And he was, again, very good with his employees, his people, low attrition, good with investors, good with everybody. So a red flag would be someone that doesn't deliver, that's quite outspoken. Mm -hmm. And we could get into other things about, you know, what makes management questionable. For example, if a company has many, many related party transactions, or they have a board that's not independent, even if they're not required to be. So for example, on the bulletin board, a company's not required to have an independent board. On NASDAQ, they are. Mm. We do invest in bulletin board companies from time to time, not usually, but we do occasionally have a core conviction position that's on the bulletin board. But you know, with those companies using our fund as an example, those CEOs built an independent board immediately. As soon as they made enough progress to find great board members, mm-hmm. they made the board independent, including making themselves not chairman. Oh, wow. So that's a very good sign that they're doing the right things, that they don't mind oversight, that they want input, that they're collaborative, that they're humble, that they want everybody to win. Yeah, that was really interesting. So the other thing we talked, so we talked a little bit about the multiple expansion side. And then the other part of the fund philosophy you mentioned was kind of public arbitrage and people not paying attention to public news. This part is like one of the most interesting aspects of investing because it can take a really, I, I was always surprised by this and I continue to be surprised by this, that it can, it made more sense that it took forever, say in like the eighties, right? Where some piece of public news took forever to kind of distribute from a press release to, you know, some trading office in like Cincinnati. But now with the internet, you would think that public news is just well known. Like if you invest in a stock, you should just know that, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. But it can often like take weeks before the public finds out about some piece of public information. Yeah, I would agree. And I would give a little more color to that, Vic, by saying that the information can distributed at the speed of light because electrons move at the speed of light. So everyone gets it on their terminal or on their phone or their device at the same time. Yep. But the bigger consideration is they still have to put the pieces together. For example, a company announces a contract. You know, what are the terms of the contract? When are the payments? How committed is the customer to that company, yep. short-term or long-term? So without going into every example and picking apart a contract or a news item, the edge that we possess and that any fund or investor possesses is by doing your homework as you stalk, as you diligence a name, Mm -hmm. so that when a contract is announced, you already know that the customer is highly committed from all of your research. And you've already studied the industry to know that it's not going to be a short-term thing or that the customer is huge and bureaucratic and is not going to unwind something very quickly once they take a long time to sign. So it's really a matter, I think, of taking the news that's instantaneous or the 8K or the transcript or the presentation and putting it together with other pieces of information so that when things happen, you can react because you already have your educational, informational knowledge base down. So you don't, you don't question yourself. You're not reacting in an impetuous or emotional manner. You've been viewing the target, lazing the target, and you have that target dead to right. So as soon as that piece of information comes out, you realize how impactful it is and can pull the trigger. Got it. Is there an example that you're kind of proud of that took quite a bit of research that you feel like you were ahead of, you know, the rest of the market on and you kind of really capitalized on that? Well, recently we just started our fund 11 months ago, so I can't point to one that has become an enormous winner yet, but we have had three or four that are progressing nicely and that haven't yet exploded in value and we expect them to. Yep. Because again, it's a function of awareness and time and people putting the pieces together. And in fact, what I'm seeing in microcap today that even when we have a significant return on investment, for example, a 100% return on investment in a position we might think it's worth literally six or seven times that much. And still, after a big move, Mm -hmm. the market is, is not putting the pieces together. And it could be a function of they don't understand, they're not doing the research, intellectual laziness. But for whatever reason, what I'm trying to say is even with big moves, they're just the beginning of the moves. 
And so I can't point to any one thing yet after 11 months that we have a, a 10 bagger on, but we have, we have some doubles that we think are going to become six to 10 baggers. Yep. And I guess, how do you manage those positions just in terms of a portfolio management perspective? If you have a, you know, say you had a 4% position that doubles, it's now 8%, right? Are you going to take a little bit of that off? You're going to leave it on? I don't know, would you add to it? Like, how do you think about that? Great question. It depends upon the individual situation. But some of the factors are, the first factor that's most important for us is what's the total return risk profile? So if our return risk profile was three to one return to risk and the positions doubled, we're going to let it go farther, but not a lot farther. Because again, it's a function of return risk profile. And that's a major thesis for us. If it has much farther to go, the return risk profile, let's say, was seven to one or even 10 to one, believe it or not, we have some of those that we think will do that. We're not going to trim that position when it goes from four to eight percent. The position, you know, gets to, let's say, 15 percent. We're probably going to start trimming that position just as a function of prudence, but still try to keep the position fairly large. And for the most part, let our winners run and, uh, trim our core positions. We also do things like trade around our core positions, but we only do that when there's significant liquidity in the name because what you don't want to do is trim a position thinking that there's going to be continued liquidity and liquidity dries up and then you have to reacquire your position higher with more risk than your entry points. You have to be really careful about trading around your core position. Right. And I know that kind of thing would mess with my psychology too which is always a tough thing to yeah, you know, I'd say get psych- under control. I agree, Vic. I would say psychology is the number one thing, trading psychology that determines performance, the number one thing more than anything. Because trading psychology is what determines, you know, did you have a bad day or bad morning or bad night the other night or are you tired or is there something that's making you nervous? You have to, when you step into running your fund every day or if you're an individual investor managing your money, Anything that's bothering you has to be compartmentalized, put away. You have to have a a clear head, no different than an airline pilot when the uh, flight deck door is shut. You have to just completely tune out everything and just focus on this. And you just can't let anything get to you or your performance is going to be affected. And then when you're trading, you have to really understand euphoria and panic and think about things like Warren Buffett says, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Everything you can think of about emotion and psychology needs to be front and center to you when you're doing your job. So along those lines, like how do you do that in something like, so the last major drawdown in the market was, you know, towards the end of last year, you know, we had like semiconductor stocks that were missing and tons of just market concern about rising interest rates and things like that. How do you manage kind of understanding, okay, is this temporary? Is it going to last six months? Like, how do you think about that? So we try to look at things from a security-specific standpoint and a market, sort of broader market standpoint. When the October drawdown happened, we'd been stalking the Russell for some time. So we ended up buying Russell puts, I believe it was around a 5% position. And we did it as a hedge, not as a speculation. And by the end of October, after the big drawdown, I believe we were up 2% for the month and the indices were down around 10. We cleared off the put position with a significant profit toward the end of October, but we still missed a little bit of the drawdown. In November, when things sort of stabilized temporarily, we had a difficult month. We were actually down 9.99, and that Mm -hmm. was merely a reduction in marks, meaning that market makers had pulled their bids. There were no fundamental material changes in any of our long positions, and there was no material volume to bring them down. It was just market makers reducing marks, doing the things they do to sort of lure in buyers. When December happened and there was a drawdown, we had some hedging, but for the large part, we were unaffected by that drawdown. And so to get back to your question, we're constantly assessing the market, assessing our positions, But things are changing all the time. And there's sort of two things to look at in my mind with the market. You could come up with lots more, but there's economic inputs 
and then there's market reactions. And so I've thought that the that the economy was strong before the October drawdown. I've maintained it through my opinion through as we speak today through our newsletters and now we're getting GDP numbers that are reflecting actually growth in Q3 versus Q2 of 2019 of the projections. So the economy remains strong, job market strong and so one has to I think bifurcate the economy with the equity markets. Because if you don't look at them individually, you're not fully informed. Yeah, especially now with so much of the stuff flowing through social media. You know, I wasn't uh, thinking back on kind of financial journalism. Bloomberg, of course, is like the biggest name. But now they have this web publication. And just this is my personal opinion. Maybe maybe you think this is different. But web publication isn't that great. Like I like their kind of core Bloomberg platform. But I find a lot of the the news on their web platform to be kind of like catch bait headlines and things like that, clickbait headlines. And it makes it kind of difficult to sort through good news and bad news on the in the financial market space. Um, I don't know if you have your thoughts there. I, I, I agree, Vic. We get two or three Bloomberg publications daily, these, these emails that I think emanate from the online. And there's just a lot of sort of general news. They're not very helpful. What I found as a free publication that anybody uh, can have access to for free is actually FactSet. So FactSet puts out uh, weekly commentary. Sometimes it's about earnings. Sometimes it's about group and sector rotation. And it's very quantitative and it's factual. I find it quite valuable. Gotcha. And also another thing I wanted to talk to you about is, because this, this is a topic I just don't hear too much about, so I wanted to get your thoughts. So say you have a, say you're working with a, with Steve, for example, and you guys disagree on a position, like he wants to be long and you don't think it's a good idea, or you want to be long, he doesn't think it's a good idea. Um, how do you manage that kind of position? Do you put it on? Do you not put it on? What, what's your kind of workflow there? It's great, great question. So Steve and I, we've known each other for 26 years. We've been friends for 26 years and worked together for 19. We have a, a rule for us when we sit down to manage the fund it's just like the cockpit of a plane. So if either pilot or co-pilot, and some things he's pilot on and some things I'm pilot on, and uh, you know, as the CFO of a publicly traded company now, he spends less time with me, but he interfaces with me on these things. And so as pilot and co-pilot, if either person decides they don't like the position or mm-hmm. they want it sold, we don't enter or we exit. If both okay. agree, we proceed but again, if if we're in a position and one wants to exit, we exit, no questions asked. So that's how we do things. There's never conflict. We just stick to rules. And did that develop over like trial and error or how did you guys come up with that? I mean, I can't say that that it was methodical from the beginning. I just have to say that as we worked together over yep. the years, it developed fairly rapidly. But I don't yep. remember if, if rapidly was six months or or two years, but early on in our days, we operate the fund like pilot and co-pilot. If either person says no go or exit, that's how it is. Got no it. questions asked, reevaluate later. Got it. So we talked a little bit about good investments, kind of management teams, a little bit on the portfolio and management and risk management side. We'd love to get back to kind of the red flags, because I think this is always a fun topic to talk through. It's also very broad because, you know, having too much debt is a red flag. A uh, management team selling stock might be a red flag. So there's all kinds of stuff. But uh, if there are a couple key things you think that are important for professional investors to pay attention to that they might not, what are those red flags? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say one of the things that uh, professional investors should pay attention to that's quite specific is in connection with financing. So lots of professional investors know that financings can cause dilution and they can cause stock drawdowns. But really, there's a deeper consideration that that I've learned some time ago, which is one should look at the capital structure of the company and the financing structure of the financing and who the players are in a financing. For example, if a company does a convertible debenture financing, and say you have a great company, great operating results, strong board, huge total available market, great business model, margin expansion, everything that you would want to look for in a company fundamentally and even technically 
from the standpoint of technical analysis company looks attractive. When you look at that company in the context of a financing, I think you want to understand actually who are the investors in the financing. And that becomes public information in connection with the 424B3 registration statement effectuation. Mm -hmm. And so you want to look at who those investors are. Are they convertible ARB guys where they're, you know, buying the convert and shorting the stock? Are they sort of day trader mentality people? Are they long holders that will get bigger, that will proselytize the message? And so I think one of the things that I've learned that's incredibly important is to understand the investor composition of a financing. Yep. And if you're participating in the financing, you obviously have non-public information until that financing's announced. But usually what will happen is there's a discussion between investors, which is perfectly acceptable, that are doing the financing as to you know who's coming in the deal and who's not coming in the deal. So the point is, if one's participating, one can analyze that. And after the fact, when it's public information, if you didn't participate, you can analyze that. So I think investor composition of financings is quite important because that affects sponsorship going forward. Right, right. And as you said, that composition is going to define what actually happens with the stock. Like if we have the day trader guys day trading it, the convert arb guys, you know, doing their thing and then have a few, I mean, you, you're going to have, end up having a pretty messy composition of financing holders. Absolutely. And from the long side, that can hold down the stock for nine months or, or a year. And so that's, uh, can be quite problematic. On the other hand, you know, someone could say, well, there's an exception because the terms of the financing are incredible and I want to be there and I'm willing to wait. And yeah. that's fine too, but just understand what you're signing up for. Right. So I guess wait, let's shift gears for a second and talk about the private investing side. I think the financing discussion actually kind of lends itself well to this. So we talked a little bit on the public investing side, and you also have a ton of experience in the self-storage unit market on the private investing side. So this, I think, is a fun topic because I don't think a lot of people know about this industry. I think they know it exists, but they don't know kind of the ins and outs of it. So we'd love to talk about that. So when we last chatted, you said you kind of focused mostly on distressed self-storage unit facilities in bad locations and then work on kind of turning them around. Right. It's, 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 it's similar to sort of public microcap investing in terms of there's a contrarian element to it. It's non-correlated to the general business cycle. So for example, in 2008 and coming out of that 2008, self-storage was barely hit at all. Yep. There was some re- reduction in occupancy, but it was quite minimal single digits. So What I like about self-storage is several things. One of the things, the major thing is that it's non-correlated with the general business cycle, and that's quite compelling. And secondly, that if you buy the facility right, you can have enormous returns as long as you're not looking for A-class facilities. So to what you let off with, Vic, what we've done is we buy sort of unloved, unwanted facilities. And what that generally is, is it's a bad location. So in business school, they teach you, you know, the three L's, location, location, location. Well, yeah. we do the opposite. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> if it's, it was a great location, we're going to run away because it's just too expensive. Yeah. So the worse the location, the more we like it because we understand we're going to have to market our way out of it anyway. And so we'll buy bad location, poor condition, low occupancy. So, for example, one we bought in Henderson, Nevada uh, in 2015, uh, same thing. Really bad location, almost a dangerous area in an industrial sort of commercial district, very poor condition and low occupancy. The uh, occupancy was about 60%, but about 55% were delinquent and nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. And we bought the facility... We put in about a million dollars into it and maybe a little less, maybe 700K-ish. And we had 193 units, plus or minus, that were 10 feet high, 20 feet deep, full of garbage. And we had four people cleaning the garbage out 10 feet high, 20 feet deep out of 193 units for about five months. Wow. Just to get it rentable. This is like very deep kind of, I mean, it's even deeper than what a lot of private equity firms do is very deep kind of operational turnaround. 
Correct, because you've got you've got lots of capital improvements, and that has to be initiated, managed, monitored. You have to put in technology, which is a great thing about self storage because it's highly susceptible to technology to make it minimally human resource intensive. Mm-hmm. And the more technology you put in, the less people that you need on site. But there's a lot that goes into that. And then there's quite a lot of marketing. Probably the hardest part of self-storage is marketing because it's a highly competitive industry because it's a big industry. It's a $28 billion industry. And you're competing with REITs like Extra Space, CubeSmart, and others. You're competing with, with REITs and pension funds and insurance companies. And these people are incredibly bright, incredibly capable, yep. incredibly experienced. And so to compete on on their level, your facility has to be in good shape and uh, very well run with the people that you have on board. And, and I don't mean to be facetious at all, but why were some of these, why were they even in business? Like if things were so bad, wouldn't their owners have wanted to kind of, you know, improve on them? Well, everybody has their own individual circumstances. The first facility we bought was a quite successful Idaho potato farmer, literally. Oh, wow. Okay. And he lived in Idaho and he was having a uh, group of people run it for him and it was sort of, you know, run into the ground. Yep. So for whatever reason, which probably a smart reason, if he wasn't going to be active, he decided to sell it and we have local management here. Yep. So we purchased that one. The second one we bought was uh, somebody who inherited it from his father and I guess didn't particularly have an interest in the business. Yep. And uh, the third one we bought was in connection with a divorce. So there always seems to be these individual fact-specific situations that give us opportunity. Although we were buying really in uh, 2014, 2015 now, facilities, their values have gone up three to five times. Mm -hmm. And so the return profile is not there for really anybody in the market. So they're much harder to find uh, these days. Yep. So how do you find them? Because that those are very, you know, it doesn't sound like it's on like Craigslist or like somewhere on the internet. Like, how do you find these kind of things? Well, we generally work with professionals in the industry. So, for example, in the stock market or in the securities markets, one can use one's own trading and analytical platforms for idea generation beyond their network. In self-storage, it really has to be network-based. So yep. this, we work with a self-storage broker who's highly experienced, and in this case, he's He's the most well-known, successful, with the greatest reach in all of the probably West and Southwest, or at least one of the top few. And with our mortgage banker, we work with a similarly, extremely successful, very, very active mortgage banker that's closing $500 million or $700 million a year in deals. So you want to work with highly experienced people because they're the ones that have the reach. You're not going to lose anything by working with them. So you pay a commission, but you could save literally two or three X the commission or more by working with one of these highly qualified professionals. And now, now we have relationships four years later with many of the people that we need to, or all of the people that we need to have relationships with from, from equipment and, and vendor partners all the way to, to mortgage bankers and brokers and everything in between. And you treat them right, they treat you right, just like any, any business. Got it. And just uh, out of curiosity, how do interest rates are low for so long? Do rising interest rates affect the self-storage investment profile a bit? Absolutely, because self-storage definitely has fixed costs like a mortgage. So most investors, even institutions, not always, but most institutions will finance things. A large REIT will not because they have so much cash flow. Uh, although if they do decide to borrow, they could be paying 80 basis points versus we'll pay 6%. Yep. So absolutely, interest rates rising has a huge effect on that profile. But the biggest effect now on self-storage is the consolidation that's happening from institutions buying literally 20 to 110 facilities at a time. While there's 36,000 facilities in the United States, 15 or 16,000 have been bought and institutionalized. So their uh, individual opportunities are disappearing fast, although there's a lot left. But again, the values have still gone up. Even if an owner is not selling, doesn't mean their value is not up and it doesn't mean they have a propensity to sell. Yep. It just means that, that sales velocity is low or even asymptotically approaching zero in some states. 
Gotcha. Is there opportunity internationally? Was that an area you've looked at? We've looked at it. We're we're too small of a business, I think, to do something internationally. But we've seen some people that we know in the industry that are quite large, who we know on a firsthand basis, start uh, doing self-storage in Brazil and uh, in United Arab Emirates. Oh, really? Okay. With some success. Okay. Gotcha. Awesome. Are there any other, so we talked about self-storage for a bit. Are there any other areas in the private markets you think are pretty interesting right now? I think that actually parking lots are quite interesting. Mm -hmm. The problem though with parking lots is they have the same problem in terms of the valuations have gone up so much that the return profile is not high like it might have been four or five years ago when we got started. I'm actually seeing some parking lots and even some self-storage opportunities in the public markets by purchasing equity or through a structured transaction. And those valuations are actually more attractive than buying the physical asset privately today. Gotcha. Would love to hear your, we talked a little bit about it, but would love to hear your current market thought. So we'll link to it in the show notes. But one thing I really like that you do is this monthly newsletter you put out. And you can tell a lot of work goes into it because you it's quite a quite a hefty newsletter. And there's a lot of great detailed information in it in terms of where you think what the market did, where it's going, the types of names you like right now, your investment profile and so forth. So I'll just read from the last one, if you don't mind. So the last one, so uh, market thoughts on December 2018 is one of the worst month of stocks since the year 1931. It was the worst year for stocks since 2008. It was a year filled with extreme volatility. And then you go on to describe a few of the issues at hand, which are things like quantitative tightening of interest rates, trade war with China, slowing economy in China, ongoing financial crisis in Russia, Brexit uncertainty, and, and so forth. So how are your views now? Are they similar? Have they changed a bit? What are your thoughts there? Well, I think a lot of those things still exist. But again, bifurcating the economy from the financial markets, I still think we have challenges uh, that are affecting the economy. But I think there, we're starting to see a real polarization, if you will, in the sense that, you know, we have companies like like Nike that disappointed today. We have other companies that have been doing incredibly well, like Caterpillar, despite some challenges internationally, but they've been able to handle it. We have a strong GDP, a strong labor market. We have 70% of companies, I think, according to FactSet, with improved results. And so, It's quite complicated, in in my opinion, because we have some economic problems in some ways, but we have economic strength in other ways, like domestic GDP and a tight labor market. We have some companies doing well and beating estimates, but then on the other hand, they're reducing guidance for the next quarter and for the year. So there's this strange thing that's happening where there's good and bad in both operating results and the economy at the same time. So my view is that we have to continue to just be vigilant about what's happening. But I I would say it's a tug of war now in the economy. That's my opinion. It's hard to really say which way the economy is going to go. But certainly, if fact set is correct with GDP, uh, and I suppose they are, coming in with the GDP to grow in, in Q3, Domestically, the economy is still doing well, but it's becoming more and more narrow as companies uh, guide guide down. For us, what we're looking at, I'm just speaking about on the long side, when we're able to find companies that are fundamentally and technically compelling with high return risk profiles, buying them literally at the lowest, at least we believe, the lowest entry point possible, we're not waiting and saying, well, we need to wait, see what the economy does and what the stock market does in tomorrow or in two or three months. We're going to hedge off the risk, whether it's ETFs or equity-linked derivatives or options on ETFs or individual names. Yep. So I don't think really in reality, and most people don't really want to admit this, I don't think you can do too much direct hedging against non-correlated micro-cap and small-cap names because there's not the liquidity to do it. So what you have to do is you have to use 
other equities, shorts, equity-linked derivatives to hedge off your risk. I think that's really how it has to be done. And if a 2008 happens, selling your microcap names where liquidity is reduced is the last thing you want to do. And that's the mistake that most fund managers made. You want to hold those names. You want to short other equities, equity-linked derivatives that have liquidity. And then you want to deploy capital when you believe that the capitulation has happened. That's really, I believe, the way to handle it. And uh, David, moving further down into the the newsletter, there's a you know, sections on the sector rotation and sector allocations. What's your process for choosing uh, what sectors you want to be invested in? Is there any stuff you stay out of? What is that like? Well, we're rarely in in banking sector and real estate sector names because they, while there's, of course, plenty of exceptions, they generally move quite slowly. And our returns are measured, obviously, annually and even monthly. So we want to be in positions that we think have higher return risk profiles. So we're not often in banking or real estate, and the fund is really not established to do that. We are looking at group and sector rotation, and you can look at group and sector rotation in many different ways. For example, you can look at a leading sector and find a company that's compelling that hasn't moved, that should be moving. It's a laggard for whatever reason in a leading sector in terms of group and sector rotation that's positive. We certainly would not enter into a name that is a momentum play in a leading sector, which we think is just a recipe for a pullback or a, or a drawdown. Also, we could look at a lagging sector, a sector that's done terribly, and find who we think is going to be the leader as money flow returns to that sector. So we think it makes sense to look at laggards in leading sectors and leaders in lagging sectors, if that makes sense. Yeah. Great. Well, I think we're coming up on time. So uh, thanks a lot, David. You've been super generous with your time. We'll make sure to link to everyone to your site and monthly newsletter and email address as well. Thank you so much for having me, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. This is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R or email me at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.